Genesis 11:31 through 12:9. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Sheshem, to the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Jessica. Well, welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are delighted that you are with us today. If you're not already there in your Bibles, if you could please turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Well, if it's been a couple weeks since you've been with us, you may notice that we're no longer obviously in 1 Peter. We had a little bit of a break last week where Dave introduced a new series. And if you were here, what he talked about is that we're going to make our way through a study of the portion uh, of the book of Genesis, particularly looking at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these three men who have all sorts of fanfare and all sorts of history and all sorts of mystique around their names within Israeli history. And the question for us, some thousands of years removed from that, might be, well, why in the world are we spending time to study these three men? And I think the answer is at least two different things. First, the, these three men are of, uh, of tremendous importance in that Christianity and Judaism and Islam all tie their roots back to Abraham. And if you take all of the adherents to those three distinct faiths from around the world, what you discover is that a majority of the people on the face of the planet make some connection to these three men historically, particularly to who we're going to study today and over the next several weeks, so that of Abraham. One could argue that in terms of the breadth of impact, there is no person whose life has so affected so many generations of people. 
So many people tie their history, their faith, their belief, their worldview, their perspective to Abraham. And for that reason alone, his life would be worth studying from a historical perspective. But secondly, and I think far more importantly for our context, the story of these three fallible men is really the story of an infallible God. All three of these men are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter that's been known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. They've been viewed as an example of faith. Their names are brought up all throughout Scripture as an example of faith, and yet their lives are distinctly marked by doubt and deceit, by defrauding and disobedience, and by discrimination even within the context of their own, their own family. We witness these, men's, these men in, occasions, uh, in occasional moments of triumph and, and great faith, but far more often what we see are their failures and their doubts. But the character who we learn the most about through this text and through the story of these three men is God, whose invisible hand of blessing faithfully delivers and leads these fear-filled men. As Dave stated last week, the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is really the story of God's unmerited promise, their generational unfaithfulness, and His ultimate restoration of them. It's a pattern that you're going to see over the coming weeks of blessing, sin, and grace. Blessing, sin, and grace blessing, sin, and grace. It's a pattern that we see right from the outset of the book of Genesis and one that isn't completed until the final pages of Revelation. It's a story that reveals the foolishness of pursuing our own happiness at the expense of God's call. It demonstrates God's radical grace towards sin-addicted rebels like you and me. It assures His unending love toward His wayward children. It shows the power of His unparalleled redemption in the brokenness of our lives. And it declares unequivocally that you can never, ever, ever out-sin His pursuing love. And through this story, what we realize is that our identity, the value of our current life right here and right now, and the guarantee of our eternal significance is not found in our earthly accomplishments or in our momentary happiness or even our familial legacy, but rather in a humble response to the undeserved call of God in our lives. And to catch you up a little bit historically with where we find ourselves here at the end of Genesis chapter 11, the first 11 chapters of Genesis reveal a terrifying, consistent, downward spiral of humanity. It started, as we mentioned earlier, with blessing. God creates mankind. He creates Adam and Eve. He speaks them into existence. He puts them into a garden that's perfect where the shalom of creation, the interwoven, interdependent creation that God perfectly designed is all functioning exactly as planned. There is no marital strife between Adam and Eve. There is no family discord. There is no difficulty. There is no pain in work. There's perfect satisfaction, in fact, in the work that God had given them to do. And as if all of that wasn't enough, Adam and Eve had perfect communion with God, unbroken, undamaged. But as we know, Adam and Eve's 
lot in life began to turn the moment that they decided to enter into sin. In their disobedience, they lost the perfect shalom of the garden. They lost the perfect communion with God the Father. They lost this relationship. And you begin to see, even in those first chapters, the world beginning to spiral out of control. Adam and Eve have children named Cain and Abel. And in in a passing moment, a fit of anger, Cain murders his own brother. Blessing, sin, But then what you find eventually then is grace in that through the line of Seth, the promise of a Savior is carried on. But after some more generations pass, humanity once again descends into such spiritual darkness that God declares that in a particular moment He needs to clean the slate that humanity had so neglected Him, so abandoned Him, so had, had so forgotten Him that He needed to, in essence, start over. And so he chooses Noah and his family, not because of their goodness, but because of the righteousness that he had imparted to them. And he determines in this moment to carry on with them after destroying the world with a flood. Noah had three sons, one of whom uh, is named Shem. And Shem, the son of Noah, had seen firsthand the deliverance of God through the ark. He had seen the way that God had provided for his family, not only in in giving them the plans for the ark and in assisting them as they began to build and and design and, and execute the plans that he had given, but also providing for them in the days that they were in the ark, landing them safely after the ark was finished, or rather after the flood was finished, and then seeing in the sky for the very first time a rainbow, the declaration, the promise of God that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Shem had seen all of this firsthand. And what we're given in chapter 11 is the line of Shem. Shem has this child, and this child has that child, and so on and so forth, until we find ourselves at the point where we pick up the story this morning at yet another crisis point. Abraham, or Abram as he's called in these first chapters, is a direct descendant of Noah's son, Shem. He is in the line of the Messiah. Through his line was supposed to come the Savior of the world. And in chapter 11, what we find is that in the generations that had passed between God's blessing and provision for Noah and Shem, the people had once again forgotten all about God's faithful promise. They had forgotten all about his deliverance. They had forgotten all about his goodness and his grace and his provision. They had abandoned him entirely and begun to worship false gods and pursue their own earthly pleasure. And that is who Terah, the, Abraham of father, uh, the, the father of Abraham, rather, and Abraham himself, that is exactly where they find themselves in this moment. They are worshiping false gods, completely devoid of any knowledge of the one true God. In fact, we read in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua saying this to the children of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And the moment that Joshua describes is exactly where we pick up in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 31. Look at what it says. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. 
So understand what's happening in these verses here. For all intents and purposes, it appears that the true worship of God had been completely extinguished from the face of the earth. We're not told that there was anyone left at this moment who was actually worshiping God. In essence, these people found themselves once again at the point where Noah and his family had found themselves devoid of God's worship, devoid of an understanding of His grace, of His provision, devoid of understanding a relationship that God desired to have with them. They found themselves in the midst of a culture, even as the direct descendants of Noah, being people who had completely forgotten about God. So much so that Abram and his father, Terah, lived in a region called Ur of the Chaldeans, and this exact place that they lived was the hot spot for the worship of the moon god. And here is Abram, the direct male descendant of Adam and Seth and Noah and Shem, through whom the line of the Messiah would have to go, worshiping other gods. And here's the point, in case you're wondering, of all this background. Because what you have here is not just a personal desperation on the part of Abram, but rather a collective desperation. Humanity itself had grown so deceived that they weren't even aware of this Yahweh God anymore. And I think part of the lesson that we, thousands of years removed, need to take away from this passage is that if the gospel is not an explicit part of your family conversation, it will inevitably be forgotten in your family line. Here's what I mean by that. I once heard a pastor say something. I don't know who, um, to whom I should attribute this, but I once heard a pastor say something. He said this. He said, the first generation of Christians is the generation that embraces the gospel, Right? So you come from a family background that has no understanding of faith, no history of faith, maybe no real experience in church, but somehow you you find the gospel, the gospel finds you, you hear about the good news of God's grace, the love and the pursuit that he has for you, and you, you begin to follow Jesus Christ. For you, as that first generation Christian in your family, you embrace the gospel. But far too often what happens is that that next generation assumes the gospel. They haven't had to do the hard work of discovering for themselves what they believe, of of navigating difficult temptations and doubts. They have just grown up always believing what their parents believed. And when that second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation then abandons the gospel. Embraces, assumes, abandons. And at least anecdotally, I'm sure that we could all point to families that we know and people that we know to whom this exact pattern has played out. The first generation believers come to know Jesus Christ. They love Jesus Christ. They pursue Jesus Christ. Their kids grow up in church. And either because their children grew up in church or are around a Christian environment, they just presume as parents that their children will naturally latch onto the same belief system that they hold. But the problem is the children never actually discovered for themselves the truth and the wonder of what the gospel is. And so when their children come along, there is no mooring, there is no anchor, there is nothing solid that their faith is attached to. It's just been a part of the family that didn't seem all that important to mom and dad. It was just a cultural Christianity, and so why do I need it at all? In other words, without the explicit explanation and training of God's Word in our families, we will will begin to experience 
gospel drift. And just to put some flesh on this, let me illustrate it this way. In my family, I'm part of that second generation. And I can tell you that, speaking for myself at least, the gospel was so familiar. It was so much the air that I breathed as a child that for much of my life, I just assumed it without ever actually embracing it. I didn't doubt it. I didn't doubt its veracity. I didn't doubt its power. I didn't doubt the reality of it. It wasn't that I doubted Christianity itself, but I just assumed the truth of it, and I never actually made it my own. And that scares me for my children. Thankfully, in God's grace, He's moved me from that point, and He's working in my life, and He's developing me and growing me in my understanding of Him and in my love and, and care for the gospel. But I can tell you that it's, it is easy when the gospel is familiar for it to become blasé. And what happens when you then take that attitude into parenting? Your children don't see or understand the need for the gospel. So in our family now, what that means is that we are looking actively for opportunities to be in God's Word with our kids, to read God's Word to them, to give them the means to read God's Word on their own. We're trying to create space for our children to ask questions and understand they ask both great and difficult questions. I could give you illustration after illustration after illustration of questions that my children have posed to me where I've thought, you know, if you were an adult with a full understanding of the Bible, I could probably work my way through an answer. But given your lack of understanding and and given my own tongue-tiedness around this topic, I'm not even sure where to begin. But those moments are so revealing because once again, they they show me in my own heart what I've assumed to be true without ever actually studying it for myself. And it also means that in the course of parenting, when Jessica and I sin, we have found ourselves far too often, but graciously, graciously in in God's care, coming back to our children and apologizing and confessing our own need for a Savior. Why? Because our children need to see that we are just as dependent on Jesus Christ as they are. And prayerfully and expectantly, when our children begin to see that mom and dad are far from perfect and need a Savior and therefore express great gratitude for God's salvation, it is going to place the kindling of the gospel around their hearts so that the Holy Spirit in His grace might set that kindling ablaze in them. And to the parents in this room who might say, well, I failed to do that for my kids and I've made all kinds of mistakes and I'm well past that point in my life and now they're out of the home or they're, they're not under my supervision, what should I now do? my encouragement would be not to despair. Because what we find in this story is that God has an incredible ability to redeem even that. That God's love for this family was so intense that despite their wandering, He kept coming back for them generation after generation. And again, I think about that even within the context of my own family. One of the things I've been intrigued uh, about for the last several years is my family heritage. And so I jumped onto one of these ancestry sites, and it's amazing the amount of information that you can find with just a little bit of searching on these sites. And what I discovered is that there was a portion of my family tree that was very easy to sketch together. And as soon as I got back about five, six, seven generations, what I began to notice is that there were all kinds of biblical names that were popping up. 
And in one particular case, I believe it was on my father's side of the family, we discovered that there was a man named William Carey Boatman, named after William Carey. Now, my parents grew up in in homes that were largely, in my father's case, devoid of the gospel, in my mother's case, explicitly devoid of the gospel, and yet they came to faith as adults. Well, how in the world do we explain that? Other than through the generational faithfulness of God, despite the generational unfaithfulness of His people. So don't despair if your children are lost and wandering even into their adulthood. We continue to pray for those that don't know Jesus, especially when they're within our own family. And the response immediately in our own hearts can be this. Well, prayer feels so small. It feels so insignificant. How do I change the heart of somebody who knows, at least intellectually, as much about the gospel as I do? And this is where we far too often give prayer short shrift. To quote one theologian, Prayer feels small if we're honest. In one sense, prayer is small. Just one person praying. But one person praying can summon all the armies of heaven. One person praying has the very attention of God. One person praying can change things. One person praying is enough. So pray brothers and sisters, if you find yourself in the position of Noah or Shem, seeing generations go by that do not know Jesus, pray, trusting that God can do that work that you are unable to do in their heart. Now look how God begins to redeem this forgetful generation of Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, there's no introduction, we don't know how this happened, we don't know if God appeared in some sort of physical manifestation or if it was a voice from heaven or, or, or something that was translated into Abraham's, Abram's very mind, but the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now again, we tend to think of Abram the, the faithful, the father of nations. We tend to think about Abraham and all the tests that he experienced and And we tend to think about him as an example of faith, but think about what he experiences in this very moment. Here's Abram, 75 years old, in his hometown, and he had servants and money and a name in his community. He was comfortable and he was connected. For his whole life, he'd been worshiping the moon god alongside of his father. He'd been involved in whatever tenets would have been involved in that religion. And here, Yahweh, the creator God, the forgotten God of his ancestors, Yahweh, with whom Abram had no personal experience or history, Yahweh, who had been all but forgotten by this family, comes to Abram with a promise. I'm going to give you a land, a nation, a great name, a blessing. Your descendants are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And this is the first recorded word that anyone has heard from God since he judged and scattered the people at the Tower of Babel. So God here delivers this amazing promise to the most unexpected individual, but think how it must have sounded to Abram. 
Leave what's familiar. Leave home, leave comfort, leave your family, leave the inheritance that's awaiting you. Go to a place, by the way, that you've never seen. And by the way, you're not even going to know that you've arrived until I show you that place. You're not even going to be able to point to a map to know where I'm leading you. I just want you to head out and eventually I will show it to you when you get there. And as if that's not enough, the Lord says to Abram, I'll make a great nation of you. But there's a major problem here. If you read back in chapter 11, what you discover is that Abram's family line tended to be rather young when they had children. We discover, for instance, that Abram's grandfather was 29 when his father Terah was born. So there's this family history of relatively young births, and for his part, Abram had married his high school sweetheart, Sarai, and in all of their years together, they have never been able to have a child. And if anybody in here has struggled with fertility, you can imagine the pain, the tears, and particularly in this culture, the potential embarrassment of that situation. Ironically, Abram's name literally means father. But here he is at 75 with no children, the last living male heir of his father. And undoubtedly, this has been a source of stress and embarrassment for Abram and for Sarai. In a culture that put a very high value on having a male heir, the family line was about to die with Abram. He had a nephew, Lot, but the line of Terah was going to end with him. And for her part, we know very little about Sarai. We're told virtually nothing of her background, and our introduction to her in chapter 11, verse 30, is that she had no children and was barren. This in a culture where a woman's value was defined by her ability to produce an heir for her husband. So you can just imagine how laughable, if not potentially offensive, this promise would have seemed to Abram and Sarai as they heard it from God's mouth. Leave everything and everyone that we've ever known, all the comforts of our life, go to a place that we've never seen, and enjoy the fruits of a child that we can't have. That's crazy. But look at Abram's response. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, we think of Abram, Abraham, as he's known. Those two names are used alternatingly. We know him as a man of great faith, and this right here is the reason why with nothing other than the word of the Lord to rely on, a Lord, by the way, whom he knew precious little about. On his word alone, Abram left everything he had ever known. And truly, that is an act of faith. But what I want you to notice is that in the words of one commentator, no obligations are placed upon Abram to maintain the promises. He must only respond to the Lord's command to leave. The commitment rests with the Lord to show the patriarch the land that awaits him. And relating the promises of verses 2 and 3, God is the initiator and the consummator. 
Abram is dependent on the Lord to achieve the promise. He only has the divine word to rely on. Abram is the passive recipient of the divine will. In other words, we have a tendency to give a lot of credit to Abraham and very little credit to the God who actually enabled everything, provided everything, promised and delivered everything. And if you get nothing else from this text this morning, from this introduction to the life of Abraham, this is what I hope we walk away understanding, because there is often a misunderstanding that people have, that people in the Old Testament were saved by obedience to the law, and people in the New Testament were saved by grace. But think for a moment about the example of Abram. Abram was perfectly content on his own to stay with his father, to stay in his community, to continue worshiping the the moon god of Ur. He had no obedience to God to speak of, no love for God in his own heart, no belief in God, no awareness of God. And yet out of nothing other than God's own good pleasure and generous love, God speaks to Abram and made this promise a blessing. And in that, what we begin to understand is that people in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way as the people in the New Testament and people today. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now wait a minute, people say, Christ wasn't even on the radar except in the future tense of the coming of the Messiah. How in the world did people in the Old Testament put their faith in a Christ that they had not known? And what we come to find out in Genesis chapter 15 is that Abram trusted in the promise and provision of God for his salvation, so much so that Paul uses him as an example of salvation in Romans chapter 4. You should read the whole chapter on your own because it's explicitly about Abraham and this whole argument of where does salvation lie. But here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say, says Paul? Abraham believed God, and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, it was Abraham's faith, his belief, in the promise of God that provided his salvation, that credited his righteousness, his right standing before God to his account. Brothers and sisters, it is only faith in Christ Jesus that that provides our righteousness. Abram was not acceptable because he made this bold act of followership. He was acceptable, acceptable because he trusted the promise of God. There was nothing he did other than to be the passive recipient of the grace of God in his life that provided his salvation. He didn't pursue God. He didn't do the right thing. He didn't obey God. None of that was around in his life. And yet God of his own goodness and free will appears to Abraham to provide this for him. See, the reason that God accepted Abraham is because of the forgiveness and adoption that was going to be provided through the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now look where this leads us. End of verse 5. Now when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. 
Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So Abram's faith in this moment played out exactly the way that Jesus was going to teach in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, when Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And those words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 10 are so startling, particularly in the context of Abraham's life. Because what would Abram and Sarai have traded for literally anything? A son. They would have traded anything for that son. And yet they had absolutely no reason to believe that God was going to grant them a son other than this particular promise given to them. And what they were being told is, and what they will continue to be told throughout their lives is, Abram and Sarai, do you actually love me? Or do you just love the gifts that I give you? And as a parent of three beautiful children, I'll admit to you that that is sometimes a very hard thing to navigate because I love my kids and I wouldn't trade them for anything. Do I actually love God more than anything or anyone else in my life? And admittedly, as I stand here today, there are far too many times where I would say no. Yet that is the call that we've been given, to love the Creator rather than the creation to love God more than the good gifts that he gives. And Abram's faith plays out exactly this way. Abraham's life proves this, that there is a higher call that has been extended to us. And it's not that those other relationships, those parental relationships with your parents or those child relationships with your children, it's not that those relationships don't matter or are unimportant, by no means. But what it means is that they are reprioritized under a new and primary call to trust the Lord and to love the Lord and his direction. So here's the practical consideration. It's one thing to, in a moment of spiritual elation, step out in faith in something that the Lord is leading you into. But how do you keep yourself going when life gets difficult? It's one thing to step out when everything is going good and, and God is showing himself faithful in a hundred different ways and you say, yes, God, I will take this step. But what do you do when you can't directly see that hand of God working in your life? Because as one pastor said, God is doing 10,000 things in your life at any given moment and maybe he'll let you see three of them. How do we not our, allow ourselves to forget the goodness of God? And I think we need to do spiritually and emotionally what Abram does physically in this chapter. We need to build those altars. We need reminders. We need to build, and the biblical word for it is Ebenezer's. 
So if you were here last week, we sang the song, Come Thou Fount. And one of the verses of that song says this, Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And Ebenezer is this idea that you are constructing something within your own life that is going to be pointed back to you to remind you of God's provision and goodness to you. And in Abram's case, that was upon entering into the land of Cain and building an altar in that place, a symbol of his devotion and his love for God upon which he was going to extend an offering. But for generations afterward, as Abraham's children and grandchildren, spoiler, they're coming, as they come upon that same exact spot and said to their parents, now what in the world are all of these stones doing stacked up here? It gave the parents an opportunity to say, well, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about God's provision. Let me tell you about how much He loves us, how He's cared for our family, how He's provided for us, how He's met our needs, how He's led us in ways that we could have never expected or ever even thought to ask for. Let me tell you, children, so that you can know how good our God is. And in doing so, He was, being, he was building a reminder for Himself of God's faithfulness, so that in those moments where God's invisible hand went unseen, he could be reminded of the goodness of God in his life. So what are those Ebenezers that you and I need to build? What are the journal entries that we need to write? What are the prayer logs that we need to keep? What are the days of remembrance that we need to mark on our calendar? so that with each passing year, we don't forget how God brought us through a season of difficulty? Where's the community of people in our lives where, we're, where when we are in those moments of doubt and fear, where we're frustrated and scared and anxious, they can say, hey, do you remember when? Do you remember when God met you in the middle of your hardship? Do you remember when he led you through that season? As one theologian stated, if you don't trust the providence of God in the past, you're naturally going to be terrified of the future. If you don't trust the providence of God in the past, you're naturally going to be terrified of the future. We are fickle and forgetful people. And there are prayers in our lives that go answered in miraculous ways every single day that we don't even stop to say thanks to God for. See, what's incredible about all of this is that we are now able to respond to the call of God that leads to a blessing because in our lives, Jesus responded to the call of God that led to his cursing. If you remember, the description of the cross all throughout Scripture is that it was inherently a curse. Isaiah is going to say, cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. And yet God the Father extended a call to his own son. I want you to go, and I want you to become some of our creation. And I want you to do for these pathetic, poor people what they cannot do on their own. And I want you to die cruelly at their hands. And I want you to take all of their sin on yourself. 
and all the penalty and all my wrath for their sin on yourself. And I want you to die at their hands. I want you to be cursed for them so that they can be blessed in you. So how is it, brother and sister, that we're able to walk into the unknown? How is it that we're able to head into a country that we've never seen? How is it that we're able to take steps of faith into things where we can't even imagine how they would possibly turn out good? Where every step of the way seems as if we are having to let go more and more of what's comfortable and familiar and safe. But I'm reminded of something I heard my father say countless times growing up, which is there is no place you would rather be and no place safer than right at the center of God's will. And we're able to do that because Jesus responded to an unsafe calling, a cruel calling, a calling that led to his own cursing. And why did he do that? He did it for you and for me so that you and I, as spiritual descendants of Abram, would be part of the fulfillment of his promise, that we would be a people for his own possession, adopted into his family, loved perfectly, despite, as we started talking about, our addiction to sin and our addiction to religion and our addiction to our own morality and our addiction to our own performance and everything else that will lead us straight to hell. Despite all of that, he came. And he gave himself so that you and I could freely walk in faith. See, if you realize, to paraphrase one theologian, if you realize that Jesus answered the original and ultimate call away from security, so that you could have the ultimate security of knowing you're adopted into the family and that you're loved in him, then you will be able to live that big Abrahamic life. We are talking about Abram thousands of years after he lived. And if we're honest with ourselves, for most of us, our names will long be forgotten within several generations at best. Not to be grim, Maybe you'll know the name of your ancestor the way that I know of William Carey Boatman. But the eternal promise of God lives on. It's the promise that Abraham claimed. It's the promise that's extended to you and to me today. To love him, to serve him, to follow him because he has proven himself and continues to prove himself worthy and good and true and generous. So be encouraged today, brother and sister, that he loves you this way. Take heart that the same God who extended that great call to Abram has extended a great call to you, one that provides an identity and a hope and a blessing and a righteousness for all eternity. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for these snapshots that we get into the life of your servant, servant Abraham. 
God, we thank you that in this story, what we really get is a picture of your consistency and your faithfulness and your deliverance over the course of generations. And so, God, we don't stand here today saying that we want to be like our hero, Abraham. As we're going to see, Abraham's life is fraught just as ours are, with all kinds of doubt and worry and fear and anxiety and sin. But God, what we are promised in this is that you continue to be faithful even when we are faithless. You continue to reassure even when we doubt. You continue to bless even when we walk away. You continue to pursue with your love even when we wander. And so God, what we pray for our own hearts and for those in our life that do not know you and for the children who are with us this morning, either in the service or in the nursery or in the kids area, is that is that we would always be cognizant and aware of the fact that you are a pursuing, love, electing, caring God. That our confidence is in your goodness, not in our ability to cling. And so God, I pray that your faithfulness would lead us to rely on you and to be faithful with the steps that you've called us to take in our own lives. So help us to be faithful even when we doubt. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.